Throughout the series on the Imago Dei, or the image of God, we've covered several key topics that our society is wrestling with today. On some of those, you may have agreed with me completely, while on others, you may have disagreed, and that's okay. On some topics, you may have said, yes, that is a big problem, and I'm so glad we are finally talking about this. And on others, you may have said, you know, I don't really think that's an issue. I'm not sure why we're talking about this. So today, we decided to end on the one topic that I think everyone will agree is an issue in our world today, and that topic is technology. Am I right? It's just me? (laughs) We have a love-hate relationship with technology. There are certainly good things that the tech revolution has brought us. But I'm guessing, like me, you've had a few moments in your life where you were on the internet and you thought, oh boy, I'm beginning to think this whole thing might be bad for us. (laughs) Then there are others of you who have been trying to tell the rest of us for years that social media is of the devil. Who's that person? Who is it? You know who you are. Yep, yep. We're starting to believe you now, okay? Perhaps the biggest challenge we face, though, with technology is the way we're all immersed in it and being changed by it without even knowing it. Christian author and social media consultant Chris Martin wrote a book called Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media. And he's going to be our speaker this January at our 5S conference. And we're going to talk more about how to follow Jesus online. But he has this really good example in his book about how pervasive online technology is, particularly social media. He references this story from David Foster Wallace, another author who wrote this. There are these two young fish swimming along. And they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What's water? Here's Chris Martin's commentary on that story. He says, The moral of this parable, if you will, is that most people are not aware of certain features of the world around them, despite how intertwined those features are in their lives. This is my attempt to be an older fish, except I'm not asking you how the water is. I'm here to tell you that the water is poisoned. My fear is that most people who use social media are like the two young fish in Wallace's parable. Social media has become so woven into all of our lives that like a fish in water, we don't even notice it anymore. We just consume content on social media constantly without ever stopping to consider the puppet strings that are being pulled behind all the content on our screens. We consume content, and content consumes us. This is my plea for you to stop scrolling for a moment and consider the state of the pixelated water in which you swim. Really good word, and I would encourage you. He's going to be really good at our our conference in in January. But I, I was thinking about this. If we swim in a sea of digital technology today, then let me tell you, I was born in the water. I used my first computer in kindergarten class. It was the old Apple Macintosh desktop. You remember those? Uh, I remember the first time in elementary school using AOL Instant Messenger to chat with a friend from school. Uh, I got a MySpace account in middle school. Anybody remember those? Yeah, y'all weren't on my top ten. Facebook I got in high school, Twitter in college, and then came Instagram and Snapchat. I grew up in the boom of the internet and social media. 
I've seen literally the best and worst parts of it, and I spent my first nine years in ministry helping middle schoolers and high schoolers and their parents navigate it. But you know what I found that has surprised me? When we talk about social media and smartphones and the Internet, we often talk about young people and the ways it's affecting them, and that's a valid concern as kids are growing up, completely surrounded by this stuff now. But I was not aware of the way that it has also affected us adults, especially those who did not grow up with an Internet connection in their homes. And I think those of us who grew up with the Internet are a little more versed in the dangers. We, we've seen it. We've been told about it our whole lives. While those who didn't are a bit more unaware of how it's shaping them. The truth is, all of us, whether you have a social media account or not, whether you own a smartphone or not, whether you go online or not, all of our lives are being influenced and shaped by technology. Okay, you might agree. But what does this have to do with the image of God? Can the doctrine of the Imago Dei actually help us as we navigate this online world we live in? I believe it can. In fact, I believe the image of God is the guiding principle we desperately need to help us think about technology. So as we've done each week of this series, let's look at Jesus, who the Bible says is the image of God. He's our Savior, our Lord, and our model. And as we follow him, we're being conformed to his image, the image of God. That's what we need so that we better reflect God to the world. So with that in mind, let's start with our first of three questions we've asked every week of this series. This is the last time you'll hear it. When it comes to, tech to, to technology, number one, what did Jesus teach? Now, your first thought may be, well, nothing. <laughs> Jesus couldn't have taught anything about technology because it hadn't been invented yet. There wasn't even electricity. Can you imagine that? A world with no Wi-Fi, no streaming services, no video games. And how did people pass the time? They must have had to, like, speak to one another and, like, go outside and stuff. Who does that? But you may be surprised to find out that Jesus did, in fact, talk about technology. And that's because the definition of technology has a much wider meaning than we often think. Technically speaking, did you get that? Technology is defined as the practical application of knowledge to a particular area of life. So Jesus, who we assume was a carpenter because of his father, as he used hammers and nails and other tools, he used technology. Now, there's obviously been a radical advancement in tech from the first century to now. Uh, electricity was invented, and with that came the telephone and computers and the internet and all sorts of online digital technology. And Jesus, of course, didn't speak directly to those modern things. But through some other things that he taught, we can draw an important principle. Here it is. Here's the answer to our first question. Jesus taught that tech is morally neutral. Again, you won't find a verse about whether Facebook is the devil's playground or just a nice way to keep in touch with your family. But there are other verses to help inform our thoughts John chapter 1, if you turn to there with me, the Apostle John, he begins his gospel by introducing us to the main subject, Jesus, who he calls the Word. And listen to what he says about him in John 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Paul tells us something very similar in Colossians chapter 1. This one will be on the screen, verses 15 to 17. He said, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. When we think about the creation story back in Genesis and God's ongoing creative work in the world today, we don't often think about Jesus. But John and Paul both tell us everything, all things were made through Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. Uh, Even the things that humans get credit for creating find their ultimate source in the creative work of Christ. And this includes technology. Because technology has been created by God, like all things, it cannot be inherently evil. It is not something that Satan somehow made himself or holds authority over apart from God. It is morally neutral. By that, I mean technology is not a moral agent. It will not give an account to God for its choices. A technology has not been made in God's images, in image, and it does not sin or need to be saved. But hang on a second. I know what you're thinking. Technology can be and is often used to do some really bad stuff. I mean, just think about all the evil now done through the use of modern tech. Weapons used to murder, new drugs created to fuel addiction, pornography, abuse, bullying, hatred, adultery. Pretty much any and every sin you can think of can be amplified through the use of technology. But to be fair, we do have to consider the other side. Some of the greatest life-changing tools in the world are owed to technology. Think about health care, the ability to do brain scans and heart checks and spinal surgery. Think about greater access to education and energy. Think about travel and information, connecting people together from all over the globe. Think about what we're doing right now. I'm talking on a microphone in a fully lit and heated room with screens to help us see when they work, right? (laughs) We've had some issues with that. So technology can be used for great evil or for great good. What is it that makes the difference? We know the answer to that. It's us. We make the difference. We're the problem. We take the things that God has made and we use them for evil. Uh, Flip with me in your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 15. We've looked at this passage a lot in this series because it's it's so helpful as we think about, you know, kind of what's wrong with the world today. Jesus is correcting the idea. He's talking to Pharisees. He's correcting the idea that food, which is something good that God made, that it doesn't make someone unclean or sinful. He says it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person, but here's what he says, Matthew 15, verses 18 through 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Jesus says we we have sinful hearts. We're rotten to the core, all of us. And our sin, what it does is it corrupts things. It takes good things and messes them up. 
and uses them for evil purposes. And again, I don't have to tell you that we do that with technology. But what makes online technology particularly dangerous above other things is our ability to use it to sin easier and more often and more efficiently than perhaps ever before. For example, just think with me this morning about the evils of pornography. 1953, Hugh Hefner published the first copy of Playboy. You had to go to the corner store and walk up to the counter and risk embarrassment by buying a magazine in public. A few decades later came the shame of going into the back room at the movie rental store and getting a video on VHS. But now, any and all adult content can be consumed online for free anytime, anywhere, by anyone. It's completely anonymous with very little social consequences. And as a result, we now have an epidemic. I don't think we realize how devastating porn has been on our culture today. Listen to me. The average age of first exposure today is 12 years old. 73% of teens have viewed it at some point. That includes boys and girls. Adult sites receive more internet traffic in the U.S. than Twitter, Instagram, Netflix, Pinterest, and LinkedIn combined. As a result of the demand and competition, pornography is becoming increasingly more violent and perverse. I'm telling you guys, we are underestimating how widespread and damaging this problem is. But what is the source of the problem? Is the technology of being able to download and watch videos over the web the problem? Well, no, we've said the sinfulness of man is the problem. Even if we were to destroy the internet overnight, that wouldn't stop sin. That wouldn't change hearts. But we have to recognize that there is something unique about technology that taps into our sinfulness in a unique way. Again, pornography is a good example. Scientific research has shown how adult content, specifically videos, has a unique effect on the brain's dopamine production that is most comparable to drug addiction. The real-life nature of these images actually change and alter the human brain like an addict's. And the effect is devastating. It destroys relationships, and it destroys the capacity to find meaning and purpose in life. But it's not just pornography. Let's, let's expand that. Things like social media, cable news, online shopping, advertising. All of these companies are doing their best to tap into our human psyche. They hire researchers who discover the way our brains work and then use our own sinful weaknesses against us. That's the whole problem with this term you hear a lot in the social media world. It's called the algorithm. What companies do is they take our data that we give them, they use it to learn about us, and then they predict what we will like or dislike. And that algorithm is designed to feed us whatever will keep us scrolling or whatever will keep us watching or whatever will keep us clicking or buying. And sometimes that may be okay when you're looking for something you enjoy or helpful. But what they found is that the best content to feed people to keep them hooked with the algorithm is stuff that makes us mad. 
Anger is a powerful emotion. That's what keeps people coming back, and we can see how that has fueled so much of the division in our culture today. So again, while technology might be morally neutral, there are unique challenges we need to think about when it comes to the power of tech today to use our own sinful inclinations against us. We swim in the water of online technology, and because of our sin, the water is poisoned. Here's our second question. Number two, what did Jesus do? And here's the answer. Jesus lived an embodied life. This is what we call the incarnation. We talk about that a lot at Christmas, and we've hit this point a lot in this series because it's so significant that of all the ways God could have planned to save and redeem his people, he chose to take on human flesh and become a man. He willingly humbled himself, left heaven, and experienced all the pain and suffering of living in a fallen world. Jesus chose to become human. He chose to experience humanity and to relate to others in a human way. And that meant choosing to live in a human body and relate to others physically. Have you ever thought about this? In God's sovereign, predetermined plan, he chose He chose to send his own son, Jesus, to live in the first century A.D. And by doing that, he intentionally limited the number of people who could encounter God himself walking on the earth. Think about it. Because Jesus came to the earth in the first century, he couldn't travel very far. But he was resigned to ministering to only those in a walking distance of Israel. Because Jesus came to the earth in the first century, he could only talk to people face to face. He could only help those he could reach out and touch. I mean, think if Jesus had just come to the earth in the 1930s when radio was the best way to spread information fast. Or think if Jesus had come to the earth in the 1950s when televisions began to pop up in everyone's homes and restaurants. Or what about the 1990s when the internet was blowing up? Or how about today when a single video clip can go viral and be talked about all over the world? Someone could literally pull out their smartphone, hit record, and be broadcasted live all over the globe. If Jesus had just waited, man, his ministry would have been a lot more efficient. He could have reached people all over the globe. He could have had a lot more than just the measly 120 followers he left in Acts chapter 1. But here's the way Paul describes the coming, the timing of Jesus' coming. Galatians 4 verse 4. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When? When did God send forth his son? He said, in the fullness of time. In other words, when the completed time had come. That means the timing of Jesus' coming was not incidental or random, but it was purposeful and intentional. And obviously there there are many reasons Jesus came when he did. He was fulfilling prophecy. He was stepping into a particular genealogy in Jewish history. But for the sake of my argument today, I just want you to consider that Jesus came at a time when he would have to personally minister to people in the flesh. And that's what he did. Yes, he spoke to the crowds on occasion, but the majority of his three-year ministry was spent investing in a small group of disciples, traveling with them personally. And to reach people, he went where they were, 
Again, to have this personal encounter with them. He could have spent all day long preaching crusades to thousands of people, but he intentionally slowed down and limited himself to a small, tight-knit community. Then when his time was up, he sent out that small, tight-knit community to personally take the gospel to the nations, to make disciples, which required doing the kind of in-person, personal, in-the-flesh ministry Jesus had done himself. So what does this mean for technology and the Christian life? Well, for one, I think it confirms something we all learned back in 2020. The Christian life is intended to be lived in flesh and blood, personal, real life community. Jesus lived that out. He called his disciples to live that out. And I believe he designed the church to be the place where that's lived out. That doesn't mean we can't be grateful to God for all the ways technology can be a helpful stopgap. Zoom meetings and recorded sermons, live streams, when, when we're unable to be together in person for sickness or travel or whatever, those things can be blessings. But there's no substitute for in-person community, in-person worship, and in-person discipleship. Right, call me an old fogey all you want, but we know it's true. We were designed for real, live, human contact, to be near other image bearers. And when we go without it, we suffer physically, mentally, and spiritually. That's why we need to lament the decline of church attendance in our country today. That's one big thing we've learned coming out of COVID. It's not necessarily that less people are coming to church. It's that people are coming to church less. We've noticed this at Blue Valley. We, we seem to have the same number of people attending, but they just don't come as often. Those that used to be here every week come twice a month now. Those that used to attend twice a month, we might see once a month, maybe. And when we miss, we might think, oh, it's no big deal. I can watch the sermon online. I can listen to a podcast. I can spend some extra private worship time with God or even worship with my family. But what you cannot create online are the smiles and conversations in the hallway, the handshakes and the hugs, the sound of congregational singing together, the taking of the Lord's Supper, and the power of a room praying and learning together. You miss the opportunity to see God's image reflected in the face of your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you miss that cumulative every seven-day effect of being surrounded by the body of Christ week in and week out and week in and week out. So technology, while a helpful gift, makes for a lesser substitute. We also need to keep this in mind with some of the newest technology that's advancing and advancing quickly. Now, this includes things like artificial intelligence, virtual reality, and augmented reality. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you, you will soon. What we're seeing is that the, the lines between reality and virtual reality are becoming blurrier and blurrier. And we're going to see more and more of real life be replaced by online life. And this is another area where the Imago Dei has huge implications. See, what happens is when we view people through the lens of technology is what's called dehumanization. 
we begin to see people not as image bearers but as avatars or usernames or as virtual objects rather than humans. We see this fake version of someone, a curated story of their life in photos and sound bites and clips, and we begin to think of them that way and treat them that way. And then we look at them as less than a person. We've already seen what happens when that takes place. So what's the solution? Do we swear off technology altogether? We've already seen that's not the answer, and frankly, that's not possible anymore. We are past that point. Instead, we simply need to obey what Jesus has already commanded. And that's our third and last question, number three. What did Jesus command? And he summed it up the best way in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus said this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus said, listen, guys, you can sum up the whole law, the whole prophets. This is the whole Old Testament right here. Love God and love others. It is so simple, yet has such wide-reaching implications. So let's take those two simple commands in the time we have left. And consider how they might apply to the way we use technology. Here's the first answer to the question of what did Jesus command. Jesus commanded us to love God fully. So what does that look like? What does it look like to love God online? Well, the first thing that probably comes to mind is to not sin. <laughs> and yeah, it's a big part of loving God with our use of technology. I, I don't need to spend much time telling you. That if your smartphone or your TV or a particular app or having a Wi-Fi connection is causing you to sin, particularly with pornography, the first thing you need to do is get rid of it. Smash it. Throw it away. Delete it. Get a dumb phone. They do still make those. All right, sign up for accountability software. Confess to someone who loves you and ask for their help. But I want us to think a little more deeply in just the obvious ways we might sin online because it's, it's not like we can say well hey i'm not looking at anything inappropriate so i'm good to go i can just do what i want no i think we need to consider the ways we're allowing technology to influence us and change us we need to ask ourselves some really deep pointed questions like am i using technology to feed an idol is the Amazon app on my phone or online shopping fueling my idol of consumerism? Is social media fueling my idol of comparison or seeking the praise and affirmation of others? Is YouTube or a sports app or video games fueling my idol of distraction or entertainment? Look, having an Instagram or watching football highlights on your phone, those are not sinful things. But if they're leading you to worship something else more than God, then they're fueling idolatry. We should also consider things like, how much time am I spending watching TV or on my phone or on my computer? Why is my phone the first thing I pick up in the morning and the last thing I look at before I go to bed? Why do I have a hard time not checking my work email after work hours? Why do I instinctively begin scrolling when I get a free moment in my day? 
Is technology causing me to be more anxious or distracted? Is it keeping me from spending time with God? Is having those breaking news alerts on my phone causing me to fear and keeping me from trusting in the Lord? Are the blogs or email newsletters I'm reading causing me to become angsty and unloving? I believe technology can be a helpful tool to fuel your love for the Lord. Think about just the access we have to the Bible and every translation imaginable. We have books and resources we can read, sermons and and great music we can listen to. It's, It's not all bad. It can actually be helpful. But it is essential we ask the question, is my use of technology increasing or decreasing my love for the Lord? Here's the second thing we see Jesus commanded. Jesus commanded us to love others sacrificially. So what does it look like to do that online? Again, the first thing comes to mind, the low-hanging fruit is like, I'm not going to bash or argue with people, and, and I hope... We know that's, that's, that's clearly wrong. But again, I would urge you to think more deeply about how technology is affecting the way you view other people. Is the content you're consuming causing you to despise a particular person or a particular group? Maybe that's the other side politically or, or a certain group. Or maybe you're always reading critiques about the church and it's changing the way you think about other Christians. Do you routinely listen to or watch or read people who speak in ways about others that dehumanizes them? Or what about this? Are you the person who's constantly judging others on Facebook? You know who you are. <laughs> like You don't comment on anything, but you judge the things people say, the trips they take, the clothes they wear. And you either belittle them and you feel self-righteous because, oh, I would never say or do that. Or you envy them and you covet because secretly wishing you could live like them. Or you gossip and you say, oh, did you see what so-and-so did or said? Can you believe that? Or what about this? Could your tech use lead you to neglect serving the people God has physically placed around you? Like are others having to constantly tell you to get off your phone? Do you come home from work and just check out from everyone else in front of a screen? Or do you work so much that you're always having to be connected to your email or phone calls and you can't ever actually unplug? Again, technology can help us in some ways to love others. We can share helpful things. We can reach out and encourage people who live far away. But we simply need to ask, is my use of technology increasing or decreasing my love for others? Listen, if this topic technology is an area you think you could work on here's how I would encourage you in closing the first thing you need to do is take an assessment take one week and track how often and in what ways you use technology if you have an iPhone like me this is really easy go to your settings and you'll see something called screen time you may have not even known it existed it will tell you how many minutes you spend each day on your phone what apps you spend the most time on, how many times you pick your phone up, and how many notifications you're getting. If you have an Android, I'm guessing they have a similar, but of course, not as good app. (laughs) Now, if you watch TV or video games or your computer, you may have to find a different way and like get a journal and just literally write down the amount of time and what you're doing on there. 
But I think that's so important. Take that assessment, and then what you can do is get together with another believer who you look up to and respect and just give it to them. And say, hey, would you look this over from an objective point of view and give me some feedback? Look, technology is so addicting. You need that outside set of eyes to help you make an honest assessment. And then once you see honestly where you're at, then you can go to the Lord in prayer and repentance and wisdom. And I'm guessing all of us could stand to better consider how we use tech. I know I could. So would you be willing to do that? If it meant better loving God and better loving people made in his image, what would you be willing to change? Let me invite you to bow your head this morning in prayer.